Thank you so much. I am absolutely thrilled to be back at Thrive. I was preaching last Sunday at this big, fancy, formal church in Athens, you know, where you have to dress up. And I work in higher ed full time, so you will find me in a suit and tie most days. And I woke up this morning and just thought, I can't wait to get to church today. I can't wait to be back with my Thrive people. I can't wait to be myself. I can't wait to be comfortable. And so um, this is just such, such a true delight to spend this morning with you all. And I'm so glad that you are here. Would you like to hear my favorite Pastor Sean story? Would you like to hear this? Now, I did receive tacit approval for telling this story. By that, I mean he didn't say, I'm going to kill you if you tell the story. I love this story. I love this story. Pastor Sean and I were at lunch somewhere around, I don't even remember where it is, I think downtown Woodstock or something like that, and we're exiting lunch, walking out the door, and a guy approaches us, and Pastor Sean had failed to wear his wedding band that day, which proved to be a grave error, and this, this dude approaches us and says, hey, I'm just functioning right now as a wingman, but that girl over there thinks you're hot. <laughs> And I said, man, he's married and he's a pastor. And, and the guy said, Jesus Christ. I said, yep, <laughs> dead right. <laughs> so I don't know if Tara is somewhere in the room, but, you know, you want to keep a tight grip on this guy because in an open market, he's obviously a hot commodity. That's your pastor. That's your pastor. I don't, I've never had a story like that other than with Pastor Sean, which is pretty cool. Um, so I want to I tell you a story about, uh, it's actually one of my favorite stories of a, a man whose life was suddenly and seemingly accidentally transformed by the love of Christ. His name is Frederick Beekner, an acclaimed author and a Presbyterian minister. If you happen to be a bibliophile like me, perhaps uh, you've heard of him if you like to read. Um, his story of coming to faith in Jesus Christ is extremely unlikely because he grew up with no semblance whatsoever of God in his life. He grew up in a run-of-the-mill atheist family in, in New England, in Vermont, actually, and God was never a part of his family upbringing. In fact, he had a tragic upbringing. His father took his own life when Frederick Beekner was a child. There was no memorial service, and no one ever spoke of it. And no one ever spoke of God. He had never darkened the doors of a church, never had a conversation about God. God simply never entered into his thinking, his consciousness, or the rhythms of his life or conversations. When he was a senior at Princeton University studying English literature, he decided to take a semester off to try to crank out his first novel. So he took the fall off, then went back to school after completing the novel, shopped for a publisher, and in 1954 successfully published the book, and it was a bombshell, propelling him to literary fame. He was interviewed by Time and Newsweek and considered by many to be America's next literary genius at the ripe old age of 24 years old. Can you imagine that? So he did what America's next literary genius does when you are a bachelor at 24 years old. He moved to New York City. He moved to Manhattan in the center of the action, and he squeezed every drop of life that you can imagine a 24-year-old bachelor flush with cash squeezing out of the Big Apple, living it up. But there was one time during the week where there was nothing to do, 
in New York City. This was back in the 1950s. One time per week where the city that never sleeps actually took a nap back then. Do you know what time of week this was? Sunday morning. That's exactly right. And he had begun to notice that right across from his brownstone was a historic church. You can still visit it today, the Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. And he remembered hearing about a famous preacher uh, who, at that church uh, at the time. Um, his name was George Buttrick. And so he thought, with nothing else to do, well, maybe I'll go to a church for the first time in his life. He sat in the back row, and he listened to George Buttrick preach. Everyone was buzzing at that time about a global event that was a really big deal, the coronation of uh, Queen Elizabeth in England at Westminster Abbey. It had happened uh, just that month, and she's still queen now, I believe. And so George Buttrick was using for his text the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You may or may not be familiar with this story, but before Jesus begins his public ministry, he is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil, where he's tempted by Satan. And the ultimate temptation is when Satan says to Jesus, all of the kingdoms of the earth I will give to you. I will make you king over the whole earth if you will but worship me. And Buttrick was, was riffing on the coronation of Queen Elizabeth and basically saying, connecting that reality that the devil also offered Jesus a coronation, offered Jesus a crown, offered Jesus the kingship over all kingdoms, all nations, all kings, right then and there. But Jesus rejected that coronation because it was Jesus' desire, ultimately, that each of us would coronate him as king in our hearts. And then George Buttrick said this. He said, and when we crown Jesus as king in our hearts, we should do so with great tears, with confession, and then he said this, and with great laughter. And Frederick Buechner would later write of that moment and those words with great laughter in a memoir. He writes this, Jesus is crowned among confession and tears and great laughter. And at the phrase great laughter, for reasons that I've never satisfactorily understood, the Great Wall of China crumbled and Atlantis rose up out of the sea. And on Madison Avenue at 73rd Street, tears leapt from my eyes as though I had been struck across the face. And he knew in that moment that he had come to faith in Jesus Christ, not knowing anything about Jesus Christ. That phrase, great laughter, broke his heart. But he would go on to actually attend seminary, become an ordained Presbyterian minister, and write dozens of books, both fiction and nonfiction. And years after this event, it crossed his mind that he would love to have the manuscript that George Buttrick preached that day in which he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Presbyterians often read their sermons line for line, so they, they type them out or write them. And he wanted to get the manuscript, and so he, he, he made arrangements for that, and Buttrick mailed the manuscript to Beekner years later. And Beekner, of course, surfed down to that phrase, that moment that broke his heart, that moment in which God just grabbed him and changed him, and all the words were there except for great laughter, the phrase that had so arrested him years prior. Great laughter were words Frederick Beekner heard, but words George Buttrick never said. Who is this God sneaking around, putting words into people's mouths 
into people's ears, wooing us into a life of faith. I think you'll agree in the passage we're about to read in Genesis 17, if you listen real close, you can almost hear God laughing out loud. In my profession, my line of work, we are expected to write things in higher ed. We're expected to publish things. You know, it's, it's very fancy, and this is how you become a big shot, by getting your name out there in the world of publications. And my book project, actually, over the last year, has been an immersive experience in the life of Abraham in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And it's been a wonderful antidote to all the craziness that Pastor Sean was talking about with regard to the pandemic over the last year or year and a half. Because these stories, these ancient Jewish stories about Abraham, I have discovered are slapstick hilarious. I'm talking about Monty Python and the Flying Circus funny. Steve Carell and The Office funny. They, they are just absolutely hilarious, these stories, the things that happen. And, and I'm convinced they are meant to be funny because God is funny. They are meant to be irreverent because God is irreverent. Let me ask you a question. Who here this morning, what you could really use, what would really make you flourish as a Christian and flourish as a human being, you could really use a bigger dose of seriousness in your life? Who wants to sign up for that? That's what you need. I mean, that would make your life better if you were just a little more serious, just a big old dose of seriousness in your life. And yet I'm convinced people walk in churches every week and they think that this is the most serious time of my week. Sullen and straight-faced. And, you know, during worship, people look like they're constipated for heaven. So, you know, they've got this grimace on their face that this is serious time. This is a time where we think about ultimate things. But Jesus was a man of unparalleled joy. Jesus was a man of unparalleled lightness. And if, in words that I have shared with you from this very platform before, I will say them again because I have found at 43 years old, they're the centerpiece of my life now. You know, there's different scripture passages that arrest your heart for different stages of life. Life has different seasons. And the one that is, just speaks to me so powerfully is Jesus' beautiful and transcendent words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a lightness that goes with living the Christian life. There is a freedom. There, 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 Jesus wants to depressurize your life. Jesus wants to depressurize your stress. And what if I told you that God is so much more playful then we give him credit for. Can I tell you a story? It's going to sound a little random before we turn to the text in Genesis. Um, this happened a little while ago. I was walking into my house, and I noticed an envelope on the door, just below the door, just kind of cast there, and, and it said the Rice family on it. And so I took the envelope in and put it on the table. And honestly, I just thought it was a birthday party invitation for one of my kids. Because we live in a neighborhood, and sometimes rather than mailing them, you know, in our kind of larger neighborhood, parents will just go and put the invitation. I didn't think anything about it. And my wife texts me 
later on that day and said, why is there an envelope with $1,000 in cash sitting on the table? I said, what? And so I got home, and, and that's it. There's no note. There's no reason. We have no idea where this money came from. And I, it would be such a great story if the bank was about to foreclose on our house or, you know, the power was off and we didn't have food. But we are both gainfully employed. We're Dave Ramsey people, so we don't have debt. We pay cash for stock. We're fine. We had no grave need, no need whatsoever for this $1,000. And two weeks later, it happened again. <laughs> And to this day, I have no idea what this is about. We did give the money away, by the way. We didn't, you know, go spend it on candy and movies. Um, but, you know, God is full of trickery. I, I think if we're open to it, God is fooling us. Um, and finding ways to playfully show us that he is better than your best dreams and mine. What if your pathway to God is way more fun than you've ever given a credit for? What if your pathway to God is more irreverent than you have ever thought before? Okay, let's turn to the text in Genesis chapter 12 first, and I have to give you a little backstory. And so we're going to actually skip 25 years through time from Genesis 12 to Genesis 17 and 18. And if you've never heard of Abraham before, I'm going to try to make this make sense, okay? Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. Abraham is the first Jew, the headlining Jew. Abraham kicks off this nation of Israel who are God's people who bring God's laws, God's ethics, and God's morality into the world. And eventually, of course, the thousandth great-grandson of Abraham is Jesus Christ himself. And so here's how the story of Abraham begins. It is very obscure, and we know nothing about Abraham prior to this moment when he is 75 years old and makes the mistake of meeting God somehow. We don't know the circumstances. We just know that he obviously had a very stable life until God disrupts everything, which God is in the habit of doing. So this is how the obscure story begins. The Lord had said to Avram, Avram, which means father, eventually God would change his name to Abraham, which means father of many, which was really, really mean of God to do because he changed his name to Abraham when he had no sons, which in the ancient world is the worst curse that can happen to you, to have no children. It is, it, it is dishonorable. It is shameful. And this is the majority of Abram soon to be Abraham, his life. So the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. We'll just keep rifling through the slides here. I, so this is God's promise. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Now check this out. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God begins his rescue operation to save humanity from the effects of sin through Abraham and his offspring. That this is the vision, that all the nations of the earth, Abraham, are going to be blessed through the nation that I create through you. And then, so, the, Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So he doesn't know where he's going. 
He just goes in the general direction that God tells him to go, and he's 75. Now, we're going to fast forward 25 years. One problem. Abraham has done everything God has told him to do, but there are no children, not one son. Hard to kickstart a nation without at least one child, right? And this is what goes down. So 25 years later, God appears to Abraham again and says, As for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah, which means mother. And I will bless you, and the promise is recapitulated. And I will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So once again, the promise is reiterated, and watch uh, Abraham's reaction. I love this. Abraham fell face down laughing. He laughs himself off his feet. He fell face down laughing and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? It is crazy. And then the next chapter fleshes out the story even more. Watch what happens. So the Lord appeared once again to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Have you heard of the Bedouin people in the Middle East today? They are still a nomadic tribe. You have to think about Abraham with those lenses. This is a Bedouin environment. They, they take their animals to graze where they find food, and so they're constantly in the, in the, on the move. He's sitting outside the tent, and Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed to the ground. I know this is weird because the text is unclear about whether these are angels or whether this is some kind of manifestation of God, and it doesn't really say that Abraham understands that off the bat. But in, in the ancient Near East, Honor is built around hospitality. And so when you read ancient Jewish interpretations of this text, they laud and praise Abraham because he is the first to provide really dramatic hospitality for guests, which is a symbol of your own personal honor in this ancient context. So Abraham hurries to meet them, and he says, If I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf, gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. She was 90. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord or my husband is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh and I love the way it wraps up. Oh, maybe we don't have the next verse. 
So, so the angel then says, you did laugh. And the story ends. <laughs> the angel says, yes, you did. The centerpiece is Sarah's laughter. Now, I want you all to, to recognize the gravity of this moment in Scripture. There are certain moments in biblical history that are pivot points, that are hinge points on which everything else falls, everything else turns. This is the beginning of the salvation of the world. This is the inauguration of God's rescue mission for the planet, including you and me. It all depends on this boy. It all depends on this son that Sarah will have. And that dramatic story, this hinge point, it begins with Sarah laughing. Sarah laughs. She's an old woman now, 90 years old, and after a lifetime in the desert, her face is rutted like a six-month drought. She hunches her head beneath her shoulders and, and shakes back and forth. She's trying to keep it in, but she can't, and her laughter is all china teeth and wheeze and tears running down her face as she rocks back and forth outside the tent. They had had quite a journey, Abraham and Sarah, the old pair, they were building a great life for themselves. Back in Mesopotamia, Abraham had a good job with a company car, a nice 401k match. They had a nice house in the suburbs in a swim tennis community with a modest HOA fee. They had a room all ready for the children with a new bassinet and a crib. They could not wait for the babies to come. They had stability. They had promise. They had opportunity. And then the worst thing possible happened to Abraham in the midst of his life of stability. Abraham met God, and God told him that he would form him into a great nation and save planet Earth through his offspring if he had the guts to just pull up stakes and go wherever God told them to go. And so they did just that. Sold the bassinet and the crib on Craigslist, which fetched a good price because they were as good as new. Abraham wrote a letter to the president of his company resigning the president told them if he ever came to his senses and came back to Mesopotamia, he would have a job waiting for him. The boss hated to lose a good employee to religion. And off they went with a U-Haul behind their, their station wagon, off into the great beyond, according to Hebrews chapter 11, by the way, not knowing where they were going. They went on the promise that God would kickstart a nation through their offspring. They must have thought they would have dozens of children, at least a dozen sons. It would take that many to get the nation off the ground. And then the worst news possible. Sarah was as barren as the barren land that God had stuck them on out in the middle of God's nowhere. And so the promiseless years rolled by year over year after year until we get to Genesis chapter 18 in which these angels show up and remind them, that when God makes a promise, he sticks to it, and they were going to have a son. And then they started laughing, and they couldn't stop. I love Genesis 17. When Abraham heard the news, he fell on his face laughing. Why are they laughing? Well, they're laughing at the notion of a baby being born in the geriatric ward and Medicare paying for a birth for the very first time. They're laughing because the angel seems to believe the promise and not only that, the angel seems to expect them to believe it. They're laughing at God, they are laughing with God, and they are laughing at themselves too. They are laughing because they know it will take a fool to believe it. They are laughing because if it were to come true, they would really have something 
to laugh at. And at the center of this rescue mission of God, at the center of this laughter is faith. This is what we mean by faith. This is what we mean by what it means to walk with Jesus Christ, faith being the assumption that God is really with us. And in the middle here, we find laughter. I want to give you three characteristics of the life of walking with Jesus Christ, the life of laughing faith that I believe we are meant to embody as men and women of joy, as people whose hearts are light, as people who have been given the easy burden and the light yoke of Jesus Christ. And I believe these three are invitations from the heart of Jesus to your heart into a life of lightness, into a life of laughing faith. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Laughing faith recognizes that I am not in control of every outcome of my life. A life of joy and a life of lightness requires that we recognize that I am not in control of every outcome of my life. This is, of course, the trajectory of the entire story of Abraham and Sarah. God slowly but surely relinquishes them of the myth that they are really in control of anything. They have to follow God where they do not know where they're going. And through story after story, event after event, God makes it very clear that they are not in control, but He is. Control. It's a powerful narcotic in our lives. Now, self-control, as I'm sure you discussed in your Fruit of the Spirit sermon series last summer, self-control is a part of the Christian life. It's in Galatians 5.22. But self-control is not spouse control, amen, or kids control, or everything in your environment control. We know who you are. Those of you who are getting ribbed right now by your spouse, we're not talking about that. Are there any recovering higher powers in the room? Yeah, there's a bunch of us. We're good at that. Control, it, it controls a powerful narcotic, isn't it? We stock our 401ks and we take our vitamins and we work out three times a week and we date the perfect person and hope for the perfect marriage and we space our kids out two years apart and we raise them by the book and 90% of the time, it seems to work out, doesn't it? Look what all of my control has created, this wonderful environment, until, of course, it doesn't work out. Until the pandemic hits and we get the pink slip and the Dow Jones drops to 20,000, until the daughter starts dating a loser and the son starts acting like a loser and the spouse cheats and life falls apart around us. And in those moments that will always come home to each and every one of us, we kind of feel like we're hydroplaning in our car against slick asphalt, gripping the steering wheel of our lives with white knuckles, not knowing where we are going to land. And we say in those moments, I've lost control of my life. Well, some people even blame God as when, as if when God is not subject to our control, somehow God is the problem. God is the one with the problem. The reality is nobody loses control of our lives. We simply lose the illusion that we were ever in control to begin with. Scripture offers us another way, another response to life's mysteries, another response to suffering. Most people respond with fear. You know, I lead a school that trains clinical mental health professionals from a Christian standpoint. Let me tell you something. Business is booming. 
therapist's office are filled with people who are scared to death because this illusion of control has suddenly been revealed to them. They realize it's a myth. Scripture says you don't have to respond to this reality with fear. You can respond with faith. Faith that our perspectives are so puny and limited and always will be, but that we serve a God who is bigger than everything, bigger than every tragedy, and bigger than every crisis, and he invites us to know him and to walk with him. Second characteristic of a joyful, laughing faith is this. When we realize we aren't in control, laughing faith frees us to receive every drop of life, every success, and hear me, even pain as a gift, as a gift. Everything we walk through, joy, sorrow, all of it, is, is a gift from God. There is a scripture in James chapter 4, and I didn't make a slide for this, so I'm just going to quote it to you. It's a scripture that I have ignored for most of my life because, like a lot of things in the Bible, I don't like it, and it just doesn't jive well with my personality. And it's James chapter 4. James is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the physical brother. James chapter 4, verses 13 and 15. And this is what James writes to early Jewish Christian communities in the first century. He says this. He says, listen, those of you who say, tomorrow we will go into this city or that city, carry on business, and make money, why you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Your life is a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if it is the Lord's will, we will go into this city, that city, carry on business and make money, if it is the Lord's will. Now, from one entrepreneurial type A leader to, to a lot of other type A folks in this room, what's up with that? Like that, that pious, stilted instruction from James just seems to fly in the face of everything I've tried to cultivate in my own life. Optimism and forward thinking and risk taking and starting new ventures, etc., etc., etc. It seems like James is trying to knock the jagged edges off of our type A personalities. But I would suggest to you that, that that's not the case. But James is giving us this life-giving phrase to just dump into the middle of everything we're pursuing in our lives. This life-giving phrase, and it's this, if it is the Lord's will. If it is the Lord's will. If, if that is our mentality in all of our endeavors, all of our ventures, all that we're building, all our risks, do you know what? That, that has the effect of taking all of the pressure off your shoulders. That powerful one. If it is the Lord's will, this marriage is going to survive and thrive and grow. It, if it is the Lord's will, this business is going to be successful. If it is the Lord's will, we will buy this house after making 30 offers on 30 other houses. If it is the Lord's will, I'll get this promotion. It, you see what I'm saying? It's, not, it's just not all on you anymore. You, you can smile. You can live your life with a sense of lightness if you really believe that, if you really believe that. You see, the self-made person, guys, is an illusion. It's just a myth. It's just a lie. Everything in our lives is gift. We own nothing. <laughs> every relationship is on loan. Friends, we are renting time, each and every one of us. 
And one of the most powerful scriptures that I believe you should memorize and put on your bathroom mirror, look at it every day, put it in your car. It's the words of the prophet Isaiah in 2 Kings 20 verse 1 to King Hezekiah, the king of Israel at this time. I love this scripture. I love this. You guys ready? Here's what he says. He says, put your house in order for you are going to die. Yes, that is a life-giving scripture. That is a life-giving script. Yeah, eat organic food till it comes out your ears, okay? Uh, listen to Forever Young by Journey every day on your car stereo. You know, get all the plastic surgery that money can buy and that you can handle. You are going to die. It's true, and it's beautiful, and it's good news, and we need not fear it. We can celebrate it because it means that everything in my life is a gift. Every glance at my wife and my children, every cup of coffee in the morning, praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> every eight iron from the 150 stake lands just beyond the pen and spins back just like the pros. It's all gift. I have earned nothing. My life is like a stack of cash without a return address that gets dropped off and my doorstep every dang day. And here's the third characteristic of laughing faith. I really do love this one. Laughing faith acknowledges that God's timing sucks. I don't think I've ever used that word in a sermon. Um, and I, I really use it intentionally because I want you to remember it. Like God's timing is awful. It's terrible. Don't depend on it. He does not operate on your timetable or mine. It's laughable. It's horrible. I, for seven years, my wife and I were members of an African-American church on the south side of Chicago. Wonderful community of faith. Our kids were both dedicated there. Um, it, it, was, it was fantastic. And in the African-American church, we had this thing that we did, and this sort of a chant. And, and the pastor would say, God is good. And we'd say, all the time. And he'd say, all the time. And we'd say, God is good. And it was so fun and so true. God is good, but God's timing is not good, okay? He's not, we'd say, he's an on-time God. No, he's not. He's not, he's not an on-time God. He's an off-time God. He's a, he's a his-time God. But he's not a your-time God, okay? And this is problematic for us, so we got to get used to it. I read this story, I think in a book a little while ago, that kind of illustrates uh, bad timing and how we as human beings, we are carefully calibrated and orchestrated to avoid bad timing and to pursue good timing. It's, it's actually, it's kind of um, solemn because it's a letter that a lady wrote to her husband informing him that she is leaving him and then a letter that he wrote back, okay? So I want to read you uh, these letters. My understanding is this is not fictitious, so we'll see. So, dear husband, I'm writing you this letter to tell you that I'm leaving you for good. I've been a good woman to you for seven years, and I have nothing to show for it. These last two days, two weeks, have been hell. Your boss called me to tell you you had quit your job today, and that was the last straw. Last week you came home and didn't notice that I'd gotten my hair and nails done, cooked your favorite meal, even wore a brand new dress. You came home and ate in two minutes, watched TV, and went straight to sleep. You don't tell me you love me anymore, you don't touch me or anything, either you're cheating or whatever the case is, I'm gone. P.S. 
If you're trying to find me, don't. Your brother and I are moving away to Alabama together. Alabama! It's the worst part of the story. <laughs> Have a great life. By the way, since you're going to be jumping into the book of Revelation next month, I have actually created a rather sophisticated argument that the Antichrist foretold about in biblical prophecy is Nick Saban. Did you know that? I'm just saying. Dear ex-wife, his response, nothing has made my day more than receiving your letter. <laughs> it is true that you and I have been married for seven years, although a good woman is a far cry from what you've been. I watch sports so much to try to drown out your constant nagging. Too bad that doesn't work. I did notice when you cut off all your hair last week, the first thing that came to mind was, you look just like a man. Ugh. My mother raised me not to say anything, if you can't say something nice. When you cook my favorite meal, you must have gotten me confused with my brother because I stopped eating pork seven years ago. I went to sleep on you after you had on the new dress because the price tag was still on it. I prayed that it was a coincidence that my brother had just borrowed $50 from me that morning and your dress was $49.99. After all this, I still love you and I felt that we could work it out. So when I discovered that I had hit the lottery for $30 million this morning, I quit my job and bought us two tickets to Jamaica. But when I got home, you were gone. Everything happens for a reason, I guess. I hope you have the fulfilling life you've always wanted. My lawyer said that with your letter that you wrote, you won't get a dime from me, so take care. P.S. I don't know if I ever told you this, but Carl, my brother, was born Carla. Hope that's not a problem. What's a Sunday morning without a few really distasteful jokes? You know, welcome to Thrive Chapel. Now, why do we laugh? We laugh because it is innate within our cognitive composition to avoid bad timing and to pursue good timing. We want to get married at the right time, you know. Um, we, we, want to, we, we want to achieve certain benchmarks in our career at the right time. But God doesn't operate on our timetable. God operates on his timetable. I love what Sarah says in Genesis 18. She says, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now be given this great pleasure? He's a his time God, and he will come through, but don't expect it to be on your timetable. Laughing faith, laughing faith. What would your life look like if laughter and joy were at the center? The center of your walk with Jesus, the center of your day-to-day -day life. Laughing faith, it is what holds the biblical narrative together because it's what holds our lives together. It's what holds the universe together together. You all may remember back in high school having to read the book Dante's Inferno. Anybody remember that? It was actually a, a rather sophisticated social critique of the time in which Dante takes people through the various levels of hell to critique the Roman Catholic Church and all kinds of kings and magistrates of that time. Nobody ever talks about the end of Dante's Inferno. It's one paragraph where Dante went to heaven. <laughs> he spends this whole book talking about hell, and it's kind of an allegory for certain things that were going on at that time. But when he goes up to heaven, he just has one sentence. He says, all I heard was the laughter of the universe. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful way to think about about God and reality and your life and mine. Laughing faith, it is what makes David dance before 
the king, the dance before the kingdom with all of his might in 2 Samuel chapter 6, making an idiot out of himself as the king in front of God and everybody else. Laughing faith is what Psalm 126 was talking about. When, when the psalmist says, when the Lord rescued Zion, our mouths were filled with laughter. La laughed, laughing faith, it's in the foundations of the universe. When Job chapter 38 verse 7 says, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy at the foundations of creation. Laughing faith, it's the, 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 the joy ringing from the rafters when the prodigal son returns home. Laughing faith is what Jesus had in mind in Luke chapter 6 when he stood in front of a bunch of oddballs and factory rejects just like us and said, blessed are you who mourn now for you shall laugh. Laughing faith is what Paul the Apostle had in mind, I think, when in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he spoke of the foolishness of God. Laughing faith. It is a centerpiece of God's rescue of all creation. And so is it any wonder that the thousandth great-grandson of Abraham and Sarah, the child named Isaac that they first bore, Isaac means laughter, by the way, and the thousandth great-grandson would be Jesus of Nazareth, a man of unparalleled joy who offers us that same joy today. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, I, I pray that hearts would be open as receptacles of your joy today that you would pluck out from our minds anything that I have said which is unproductive and unhelpful, but God, that something would resonate and men and women, students, would make a decision today to allow themselves to be filled with your lightness and your joy, to set aside baggage, to set aside heavy loads and heavy weights, and instead to live in the reality of your goodness and your laughter. 